turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter this morning, chapter 3, verse 17. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them, get their attention, and they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands and you can follow along, not only listening, but with your own eyes. And if you don't own a Bible, then please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. Sunday mornings, studying and now finishing the book of Second Peter with the final two verses of the book, beginning in verse 17, chapter 3. Peter writes by the Holy Spirit, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest also you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for all that is bound up in these two verses. Thank you that you have ended this letter in this way, intent upon leaving us with particular thoughts. And we just pray, Lord, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit this morning. We don't want a single word or jot or tittle or thought or precept from your word to merely be on the printed page, but we also want it to be incorporated into our life and into our relationship with you. And so we ask that you would do that this morning with these two verses. We surrender to you toward that end. Glad to do it, Lord, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to say goodbye not only to first, uh, Second Peter, but also to First uh, Peter by um, taking a little time to have a, uh, a Salah. And in the Old Testament, very often you find that word in the Psalms, Salah, and what it means is where the psalmist is writing and then he has kind of said something that's very important that we might be tempted to just read past and he would insert a selah, which means to stop and meditate, to stop and, and pause and give some special attention to what has just been written. The book of First Peter was written to Christians who were suffering very, very mightily from an outward persecution by the world against them, and principally uh, by Rome in a very orchestrated uh, governmental uh, uh, persecution of Christians at that time under a, a Caesar by the name of Caesar Nero. And First Peter was written in order to provide Christians with encouragement, to provide them with an eternal perspective, to provide them with very practical instruction for how to navigate a persecution that can come against us as Christians from a world that is hostile to what we believe and hostile to the God that we love and we serve. Second Peter is a little bit different in that Peter continues to speak to Christians who are in that same spot of continued persecution by the world against them for their faith, but with the added dimension of now false teachers 
entering into the church and trying to pull Christians away from the simplicity of Christianity, their relationship with God, into false teaching. And so you have for, in Second Peter, Peter is addressing Christians who are now facing a very uh, easy-to-identify attack from without the world against them and Christianity, but then also a much more subtle attack from within, and that is false teachers who are not Christians but claim to be, who are trying to draw people unto themselves. And both of those uh, oppositions have their own kind of challenges that we face, and they all, each of them brings kind of a dynamic into our lives. And some people are stumbled in their faith or they um, uh, uh, their relationship with God or their continuing with God is put in jeopardy once they begin to really face opposition and rejection uh, by people, by the world, for their faith in Christ. And then, uh, and then there's a, an entire group of people who can endure all of that readily and remain steadfast, but they then come into the body of Christ And then sometimes the nonsense that goes on in the name of Christ but has nothing to do with them, that becomes a great stumbling block to them. And they fail to realize that Jesus alone is the true and faithful witness of the Father. No one else is. And so when they see some of these shenanigans, they become disillusioned and then they lose their steadfastness in the Lord. And so Peter has a great heart toward the Christians 2,000 years ago, but also toward us, and of course the Holy Spirit who inspires the letter, that not one of us would cease to be steadfast in our relationship with the Lord based upon anything that the world meets out against us or anything that we would be tempted to disillusion us that we see within what calls itself uh, Christianity. And so Peter closes this second letter in verse 17 with an exhortation to remain steadfast. And you notice that word steadfast in that verse, to remain steadfast in the face of both of these very, very significant uh, oppositions or challenges. The word steadfast there means to be steadfast. It means to be stable. It means to be firmly established, to be unmoved in our relationship with God uh, despite these things that might be going on around us. And all of this, this call to steadfastness is interesting to me in light of the fact that Peter has not always, uh, was not always the uh, poster child uh, for stability in the Bible, either emotional or mental or spiritual. He had some uh, tremendous highs and some tremendous lows in his relationship with the Lord. And yet, here he is in a place now, his own life made steadfast and calling on us to be steadfast as well. I think about Peter and uh, several experiences in his life, walking on water. Remember Jesus took in the disciples, put them on a boat after a busy day of ministry, told them to take the boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus says, 
you know, to go to the other side, you're going to go to the other side. And so uh, he continued on the one side of the Sea of Galilee, continued to pray, and then in the middle of the night, he walked on water to the boat. And the disciples saw him coming. They became frantic, thought it was a ghost. Jesus identified himself as Jesus. Peter, as Peter was prone to do, very emotional, I love it and uh, very much a leader, and I love that too. He said, Lord, if it's you, then call me to come out to you. And so Jesus called him out. Peter going over the side of the boat. I mean, it's really tremendous if you put yourself in his place. And he begins to walk on the water to G- toward Jesus. And then his eyes were t- went off of Jesus, went on to the greatness of the storm, the greatness of the waves, and he began to sink. And uh, he cried out to the Lord, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus put out his hand, lifted him up out of the water so, and literally saved him from drowning and then said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So here's this mountaintop experience of walking on water and then the next thing it is, he's sinking and, uh, and, and then being rebuked by the Lord for a lack of faith. So this up and this down experience, which characterized his life at the time. At Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked the disciples while they were there, he says, who do men say that I am? What are the, what, what's the word out there on the street that people are saying that I am? And Jesus already knew, but he asked them to question in order to raise a second question to them. And they say, well, some people are saying you're John the Baptist, some believe you're Jeremiah, some believe that you're Elijah, some believe you're uh, another prophet. And then Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he spoke for all of them. And Jesus then said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so here he is on this mountaintop experience. He, he has been praised by Jesus as having received revelation from the Father. Jesus then goes on to describe the suffering that is going to be awaiting him in the city of Jerusalem and the crucifixion, how he'll be maltreated by both Jew and Gentile. And Peter then takes it upon himself, kind of in the headiness of the earlier praise, and he kind of puts his arm around Jesus and tells him, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Lord, we just got to stop this negative thinking. This is not going to get us anywhere. You can't be believing these things about you. And then Jesus said to him, get thee behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And so immediately on this great mountaintop, he would have remained there if he could have just... How many of us understand it? But he had to keep on talking, and then pretty soon he's down in the deepest valley and all of that public. On the Mount of Transfiguration, much the same thing happened there. He's up there with uh, James and John, one of just three of the apostles, and he sees Jesus transfigured in his eternal glory. And Moses and Elijah are there, and they are, uh, there's a discussion going on among them. And Peter kind of jumps into the whole thing, and he said to Jesus, it's good for us to be here. Talk about a dollar waiting on a dime. What's he thinking? Jesus, I, I, think, I think this is good for us, and maybe even good for you that we're here. It's 
good for us to be here. So should, should we build three tabernacles for you and Moses and Elijah, putting him on Jesus on the same level as the prophets and the law? And this time, uh, Jesus doesn't have to rebuke him. God the Father speaks out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. So here he is, he's enjoying an experience in human history that only two other human beings are uh, in the middle of, this great mountaintop experience, and then he's got to open his mouth again, and pretty soon before it's all over, he finds himself down in the valley. Lord, can I just keep my mouth closed <laughs> You know, to have a mountaintop remain a mountaintop without ending up in the valley on, on all of it. And then Jesus in the upper room and he was washing the disciples' feet on the night before his crucifixion. In John chapter 13, he girds himself with a towel and he begins to go around in the room, begins to wash the disciples' feet in just this beautiful demonstration of servanthood and, uh, and lowliness and humility. And Peter's looking at it instead of accepting it for what it is. And here is this, and again, he's one of just, uh, uh, you know, two handfuls of men that are experiencing this in human history. Instead of just enjoying the mountaintop experience of it, he, Jesus then comes to him to wash his feet. He says, you will never wash my feet. He thinks this is some kind of a test that all the other disciples are failing in and failing to protest Jesus washing his feet and that somehow if he steps up, I think, uh, this is what I think related to it, he steps up and says, you shall never wash my feet, that he's going to get another. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven uh, is going to get another button that he can wear on this side of his robe as well. And Jesus then rebuked him and said, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter said, well, not, don't just wash my uh, feet, wash my hands, wash my head, wash everything. And Jesus said, there isn't a need for you to be completely washed, but just to wash your feet. And so here he is. Like once again, he mars this beautiful experience. And it was this, just this characteristic to just kind of, uh, you know, uh, ruin and on some level uh, anything that he was in the middle of. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as if Jesus didn't have enough on his mind, he had Peter, James, and John with him in kind of an inner circle that he took further into the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion in order to pray with him. So again, this is very uh, holy ground, a very elite place that Peter is in, in the middle of. And and then as soon as the soldiers come with Judas in order to arrest Jesus in the morning, uh, Peter takes out a sword and he just begins to swing it. And, and he cuts off the right ear of the servant of, uh, named Malchus of the high priest. And Jesus is forced to pick the ear up out of the dirt, dust it off, I suppose he didn't need to, and then uh, heal the servant. So here he is, he's creating more work for Jesus on a day that's uh, going to involve quite a bit related to the salvation of the world and all, and this was uh, w what Peter did. And so up and then all the way down again, and all of this preceded his three denials that he even knew Jesus after he had sworn the night before that there's nothing, they, they can torture me, they can kill me, and I will not deny you. And Jesus said, but you'll deny me three times. And even in the face of the very heady kind of 
uh, opposition of a young maiden. He denied that he even knew Christ. And so here was this great self-confidence, this boldness, though they kill me, I will never deny you. And he's on the mountaintop. And then before the morning is over, he denies Christ three times and then goes off to weep bitter tears. And I think most of us uh, have uh, wept bitter tears at some time related to our Christian life and in our failure to be what we absolutely believed was true of us in that situation that we would have the strength that we would never do, that we would never fail. And he went off in his failure and he began to weep bitterly. And later Jesus restored him as recorded in John chapter 21 and following his three denials by asking him, uh, following his res Jesus' resurrection from the dead on that same shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter asked, the Lord asked Peter again, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And Jesus asked the third time, Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And Jesus did not want Peter's failure of his three denials to be the thing that would characterize his life. God will never let in our lives as Christians our failure to be the final thing that defines us. We'll always have our lives ultimately when he's allowed to work in our lives be defined by his grace. And so here's this restoration and recommissioning of Peter now into that position of leadership and as, a, as an apostle to continue that in the body of Christ and to be a feeder or tender of God's people. Well, that's a mount, that's, he's back on the mountaintop. And then Jesus just walks right over here some distance and he begins to talk to the apostle John about something. And Peter walks over there and interrupts him. And he says, what are you going to do with him? Jesus had told Peter how he was going to die, crucified upside down in old age. And Peter goes and says, well, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus turns around and says to him, what is that to you? I've told you what you need to spend your life on. Stay out of John's business. That's a paraphrase, new modern English. And so here again, in this great recommissioning and all, once again, all the way back down, rebuked by the Lord. And so all of this up, all of this down, and we love Peter for all of it because we see ourselves in him, and yet Peter did not remain that man his whole life. We meet him as a fisherman in the Bible, and then we leave him here in Second Peter as a great and beloved apostle that Peter had become absolutely steadfast in his love for the Lord, steadfast in his walk with the Lord, in his service to the Lord, even to the point of dying a martyr's death, where at one point in time a maiden saying, you are with Jesus, got him fumbling around and cursing and swearing and all of these things, vowing, in other words, that he didn't know Jesus and all, and, and ultimately he comes uh, to a place where he's willing to die a martyr's death, being crucified upside down because he didn't believe himself worthy to be crucified and right side up as his Savior had been. 
We ask ourselves, what in the world happened to Peter? What was the source of that transformation from this very well-intentioned Christian, but very, very flighty and very, very unstable to becoming this steadfast, rock-solid in his faith and in his Christian service? What in the world happened to this guy? And the simple answer is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, as recorded in the book of Acts, and the Peter of the book of Acts is nothing like the Peter of the Gospels. That man that couldn't stand and testify to Christ before young maidens on the day of Pentecost stood up and preached one of the most powerful sermons ever preached in the history of Christendom. And he preached it before a great religious crowd only weeks after that city had crucified, united together in crucifying Jesus. It was still a dangerous place for Christians. And he stands up and he preaches this sermon. And 5,000 people come to know the Lord. And now he has the power in his life that Jesus had described to the disciples immediately before his ascension into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, he said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and as a result of this power, the Holy Spirit coming upon you, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Holy Spirit is with every single person in this world before we become a Christian. He is with us, para, alongside of us. We come to know the Lord only because the Holy Spirit has been kind of a divine uh, bumper car. Every time we're going in this direction, and he bumps and he bumps and he bumps until finally we come face to face with Christ and decide what it is that we're going to do with him in our life. But that he's doing, that's the work of the Holy Spirit related to every Christian but every non-Christian in the world. And then there's a second work of the Holy Spirit that's unique to a Christian, and that is the Holy Spirit coming inside of us at our invitation. And when a person is born again by the Holy Spirit, it's a spiritual birth, the Holy Spirit comes into our life, and he is now in us. And when Jesus talks about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the, the apostles had already received the Holy Spirit inside of them. Jesus had breathed upon them on the night of his resurrection from the dead. And now he talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon a Christian. It's a different preposition. Upon us for the purpose of supplying us with the power to live a life like Christ anywhere we find ourselves in the whole wide world. No matter how difficult the circumstance is, how difficult the nation is, or the apartment complex is, or the family is, or the city is, here is a power to live this Christian life that's greater than anything that would oppose us from without, First Peter, or attempt to oppose us in our faith from within professing Christianity, Second Peter. And so this baptism with the Holy Spirit, and I've always loved the word baptized as the, one of the words that's used to describe it because I think it really is kind of a, uh, gives a word picture. We just had a water baptism this last Monday. Boy, there's so much in a week. It feels like a month ago now. 
51 people baptized this last Monday. We praise the Lord for that. We never know. We schedule the next water baptism. We think, are there going to be six people here just for the free nachos? Or what's going to happen? I and mean, then hundreds of people come out, already know the Lord, already baptized, just church family wanting to worship the Lord and celebrate this, and each one of those lives a miracle. But you put, I put them down in the water. They come up out of the water, and as they come out of the pool of water that they've been baptized in, when a person then hugs them, what do they get on them? They get on them the water that they've been baptized in. They get on them what the person's been baptized in. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit coming upon our lives and overflowing our lives so that when people come into contact with us as Christians for the rest of our lives, they're no longer coming into contact with Damien Kyle or the old me or the flesh, the severe limitations of that flesh, but they're coming into contact with Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit through my life. And that's a great privilege to be able to live that kind of life. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given for that purpose. And the beautiful thing is we look at Peter before the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He is one thing. And then you look at Peter after the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you go, that's a different person. I mean, they, somebody must have just, it must be his twin or something who's very different from him. He's just two entirely different people. One of the greatest descriptions of the change that this Holy Spirit coming upon us as God's people, one of the greatest descriptions in the Bible has to do with the, the first king of Israel, Saul. And it says in the Old Testament, this upon experience of the Holy Spirit was not every child of God didn't have that. All of us, each of us can have that. But God would baptize people with his Holy Spirit when he called them to do some kind of significant work, like be a king or be a prophet or uh, do some kind of miracle or something like that. And God baptized Saul in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and it said concerning him, he became another man. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit does. A person literally becomes another person because the fullness of another person is being allowed to dominate their lives, the person of the Holy Spirit and the person of Christ. And Saul didn't remain faithful, and he grieved that Holy Spirit and that work of spirit in, in his life in a way that none of us need to. But Jesus declared that each and every one of us as Christians, that this power to live a Christian life, a Christ-like life in the world, no matter where we are, is something that each of us can ask for. And Jesus said, if us as human parents, fathers, he said, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, and we do, he said, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And give is a received word, and ask is a, a gift word. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit is simply received by asking God for it. And this dramatic change can occur in any life. And I want every single person that I'll see today in this room in the morning services to know that that's available to them. Probably 90% of, of you in this room already know it. 
but I wouldn't want a single person to live one day without knowing that this is available to them. And then to ask, right where you're seated, you say, my Christian life looks completely like Peter before the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm so well-intentioned. I want to, but my life is one of just ongoing failure. I see God's grace in my life. I see the mountaintop experience. I see God trying so hard related to my life, and I see myself marring it every time I turn around. I recognize, that I recognize myself in that Peter, but I want to be the Peter that, was, that he became after the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And right where you're seated, you can just say in the privacy of your own heart, Lord, what that man is talking about up in that pulpit right now, I want that for my life. He said from your word that you promised to give that to whoever will ask. And so I ask for that right now. And you just ask and God will give it to you. God will say, listen, you ask and I want 50 push-ups right now. Give me 50. A lot of us couldn't be baptized with the Holy Spirit if we had to do 50 push-ups in order to get it. Uh, Jim, maybe I'm a little different, but I remember all of my PE coaches in junior high, Mr. Smith, Mr. Vargas, and Mr. Butler. And each of their middle names could have been, give me 50. And some of us heard it a lot from those guys. But it's a lot simpler than that. It's just there for the asking and the receiving. And so this steadfastness with the Holy Spirit, it begins with the baptism with the Holy Spirit, but it also includes two other important things. Verse 18, that we grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word grace speaks of God's unmerited or his undeserved favor in our lives. And there's that recognition that in this relationship with God, God deals with us according to grace. It's a funny thing. You would think that the longer we walk with the Lord, the better we know him, the more we become conformed into the image of Christ, the more we become obedient to his word, that we, we, we would become less and less conscious of how much grace he is pouring out on our lives. But the exact opposite is true the more that all of those things happen and the longer we walk with him, the more we become conscious of how much grace is involved from God in us being able to live this Christian life. His grace in the form of forgiveness, his grace in the form of power to live a different kind of life. And so this grace and 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 all of its forms that it takes in our lives. And even the Apostle Peter, even though he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, he kind of flubs a little bit in the book of Acts. Like one time, just so we know that the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't make us perfect. He's in the city of Antioch, and he's eating with Gentiles, a Jew eating with Gentiles, because now there's no longer Jew or Gentile in the body of Christ. Christ makes us all the same. We all get into heaven the same way. And so he's eating with Gentiles, which was a big thing for a Jew to do in those days. And then some kind of high-level Jews came from Jerusalem 
and James in Jerusalem, they came into Antioch, and then when they came, Peter now became conscious of what he was doing. He wouldn't sit with the Gentiles anymore. He would only sit with the Jews. And Paul watched this, and Paul recognized the hypocrisy of it, and he stood up and he rebuked Peter publicly related to it. And Peter, to his credit, he received the rebuke, and he was made a better man as a result of it. But the reason that I bring it up is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we'll be perfect and we'll never need God's grace ever again in our life. Um, it, it just means we'll have the power to live this kind of life, but we will never, ever outgrow his grace. No matter how long we walk with the Lord, and the beautiful thing about walking with the Lord for a while is we realize this relationship with him is not performance-based. It is grace-based. It is blood-based. It is based upon what God has first done for us. And I think about even the Apostle Paul as he wrote in his final letter before he was beheaded for the faith. And his final letter was to a disciple of his by the name of Timothy. And he wrote in this very same vein to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he said, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is the position of strength. We can put the weight of our whole Christian life upon the grace of God that he has for us and not fear that his grace will collapse in any way. We sing that chorus, your grace opened the door to heaven, your grace welcomed me in, your grace, wonderful gift that you've given, your grace is greater than all of my sin. Praise the Lord for God's grace. We'll never outgrow it. And then finally in verse 18, each of us is... Uh, to be growing in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the word knowledge there is gnosis. It means, it speaks of a knowledge that comes by experience. It's not just book learning. This is a knowledge of, of God that comes with personal relationship uh, with him. And Peter knew that the surest means by which to successfully endure any persecution of the world against us or any foolishness within professing Christianity that might stumble us, the surest protection against being stumbled by either of those two things coming from two very different quarters is to make sure that the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ is more important to us than any other relationship in the world and anything else in the world. Because when you have the real thing, and Christianity is all about a relationship with Jesus Christ, then what in the world can compare to it? We've just been spoiled. No one would want to give up their relationship with the Lord, even if it meant our death because of the persecution of the world or the folly sometimes within the body of Christ. And it is a deep, personal growing relationship with the Lord that is the greatest protection against persecution and against false doctrine. And so here is the apostle Peter. He's really a lover of our soul, and he exhorts us to have a relationship with Jesus that is always growing, always becoming 
deeper. And there are a lot of blessings to that kind of a relationship with Christ. But the blessing that we look at specifically here this morning is it provides us with a steadfastness against anything that would attempt to move us from it in this world. And then he closes in verse 18 with a final expression of praise to him, that is Jesus, be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And Peter takes and he leaves history, church history for us, with those words. Those are his final words. He heads then to a martyr's death via crucifixion, and yet he doesn't utter a single regret for the privilege of knowing Christ and walking with him, whatever the consequences might be in the middle of this fallen world. And not only does he not have a single reservation related to his own life, but then he exhorts us to follow him in that same life and in that same commitment. You think about how hard, in one respect, it would be for Peter to write what he writes here. Think about your children. Think about who you love most in life. And it's one thing for a person, a man or a woman, to look and say, I'm going to go and I'm going to die a martyr's death for my faith in Christ. To say, I'll leave that as just a mere example on my part to those that I love and to the world around me, and then to go and do it. And then it is a far greater thing for someone to look into the eyes of the people that they love most in this world and say, that is where I'm going. That is what is going to happen to me. And then to call on them to be faithful to the Lord, even if it means their martyrdom in this world. Well, you don't make those kind of challenges to other people. You don't do that in a loose kind of casual way. And yet that's exactly what Peter does here without any regret. Because this is the greatest life a person can live, even if it ends in martyrdom. There is nothing that compares to the life and the relationship that we have with Christ. And so this morning we want to, as we close these two epistles, just continue our Selah this morning by partaking of the Lord's Supper. The bread or the cracker, a symbol of his body. The cup, a symbol of his blood. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have not yet put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you can do that right now where you're seated and then partake of the Lord's Supper with us. But if you say, no, I haven't trusted in Jesus yet and I'm not ready to do that yet, I still have a few more questions, then that's perfectly fine. But just don't partake of the symbols of his body and his blood, the price that was paid for you to be saved until you are saved. Continue to enjoy the rest of the service and God's, the work of God's Spirit in drawing you to him, but just don't partake of the elements here uh, today.